0: Welcome to Mr. Brown's Ballad Hour, where time is a
1: place, where the skies, evening gorgeous,
0: where the moon waxes and wanes, and poetry is the stuffing in our face. Making to Mr. Bear's Violet Hour. I'm Mr. Bear and I'm so excited to be back with you for the new moon in March uh, and the new moon is a time of reflection and quiet and things growing in the dark. You can't see the moon up in the sky but it's there and uh, I, like, I like to think about that imagery about what we can't see, but that's still with us and still growing so what's what's growing for you in the dark this month? What are you gonna give birth to and bring out into the light of the full moon later this month? Um, just some questions to think about uh I don't know if you've ever heard of biodynamic gardening uh i'm I'm a bear uh we do more eating than planting, and I don't actually know anything about uh, biodynamic gardening. Other than that, it has to do with the planting and harvesting according to the phases of the moon. And at the new moon, uh, it's a time for rest and meditation and celebration. Anyway, you can Google more about biodynamic gardening if you're interested in that. Um, That's how I find out a lot of things is Googling. But in the meantime, uh, we can all do a little reflecting under the new moon sky and, and uh, think, about, think about what you want to bring forth into the light. Uh, what I want to bring forth right now is some really terrific work, uh, writing and music and interviews. And what I have for you today is some beautiful writing by Megan Pillow, dreamy music by Flutter, a.k.a. Christine Ingoldson, a creative writing prompt from KB Carl, and information on a caregiver archive project. So let's get right into all this goodness. Water in the Blood by Megan Pillow. This was published at Tri-Quarterly, a literary magazine of Northwestern University. There's something in the woods behind the house. Laura can hear it through the open window underneath the patter of rain as she nurses the baby. The thud of paws against the ground. The rush of breath as it snuffles searching for food. Third night in a row. Each night the something hunts along the same path between the palm trees and the fence line near her bedroom window. Each night... It sounds like it's getting closer. The baby's lips and tongue pull at Laura's nipple three times and pause. Three times and pause. It's not the consistent rhythm he uses when he's awake and hungry. Tug, 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 tug for minutes on end. But the pull and pause that means he's asleep again and not drawing milk, just comfort. Laura slips a finger in between her nipple and his mouth and breaks the suction the baby falls back into the crook of her arm, his mouth still nursing a phantom breast. A slender thread of milk runs down the side of his cheek and pools against the skin inside her elbow. She gently pulls her arm out from under him. His limbs are heavy and loose, his torso and head like little water-filled balloons. Once she is free of him, he is soft and slack, like a water balloon upended, its open lips spilling its contents across the bed. Laura gets up and goes to the window to see what's making the sound. A silken back glistens silver in the moonlight. Florida panther, maybe? Panthers aren't supposed to live as far north as Gainesville. But it moves like a cat, flips its long tail like a cat. Its head is bent to the ground, hidden in dark. She cups her hands against the window to block out the light, and her knee hits the edge of the half-opened, rain-spattered glass with a thwack. The something's shadowed head pulls up sharply and looks in her direction, crashes off through the underbrush. In a moment, gone. A soft knock against the wall behind Laura's head. It echoes in the monitor next to the bed. Laney turning over, wrapping her knees against the bedroom wall. Sloan's soft snoring in the background. In the two months since the baby came, they've been restless sleepers, waking up three and four times a night, calling for her. Tonight, they're quiet. On the nightstand beside the bed, her phone dings. Martin. A text and a link. It's up, let me know what you think. A moment later, another. Kid's okay? Fine, she types. Reading now. She clicks the link on her phone, and there it is, into the great white open, one man's journey across Antarctica alone. God, that fucking headline. She gets up, gets herself another glass of wine, then she settles back in the bed and scrolls to her husband's byline, Martin Gunn. It's the first time she's ever seen it listed when she hasn't also been working on a project, when she hasn't also been waiting to share a link with him. The small dark thing that lives in the pit of her stomach begins to gnaw. She reads the lead. Before me there is white. Behind me, white. White to the east and to the west. There is not a single plant or animal around me. Nothing but white until the white turns to blue in places. White that at its edges becomes pink and red and orange where it touches the sun. Nothing but me and my ragged breath, which hangs in the air like a crystalline cloud before it dissipates in the wind as I trudge one more mile across the frozen expanse. Laura closes the browser, then her eyes. Not now. She can't do it now. She sleeps lightly, briefly. The baby stirs and stretches, opens his mouth, wide and pink like the inside of a clam, his tongue a pearl in the low lamplight. She picks up her phone, reads the rest of the article, then she texts Martin. Beautiful, she types. He texts back immediately. You would have done it better. Doubt it. But that little small dark thing is still gnawing, And now it whispers to her, yes, it says, yes, you fucking would. That was flutter with molting. The baby wakes at 2am to eat, then again when grey light begins to fill the room. She dozes off while he nurses, and when she wakes again, it's still raining. Been raining for days. A tropical storm has been hovering over the Gulf, and the rain is heavier today, punctuated with the occasional ting of hail. Overhead the fan goes click, 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 as it rocks slightly in its housing the small chain circling over her like a hypnotist bauble. Suddenly she's aware of the round weight of the baby beneath her. Her heart stutters and she rolls over. He's still, his small face pale in the early morning light. And then he takes in a deep shuddering breath and screams and her heart begins to pound its normal rhythm again. She grabs him up and holds him to her. Thank God, thank God, thank God, she thinks as he grouses against her neck. She must have rolled onto him just before she woke. If Martin were here, he would be screaming at her. He never let her co-sleep with the girls. But Martin isn't here. Martin is in fucking Antarctica and has been there for a fucking month. And so she brings the baby into bed sometimes so he can nurse and she can get some sleep. It's been fine. But last night she had three glasses of wine instead of her regular two. Never again, she thinks, as she kisses the baby's sweaty little head. He's rooting at her collarbone, his little mouth trying to find a nipple, so she lifts her shirt and helps him latch. He snuffles and grunts, latches on, wraps his little arms around her breasts, digs his fists in. After a while, he pops off her nipple and gives her a gummy milk-mouthed smile as the girls start stirring. It isn't until she gets out of bed that she notices the pool of blood on the mattress. It's the size of a chair cushion and scalloped, darker at the edges where it's begun to dry. Laura strips the bed, takes off her bloody pants and underwear and rolls them into a ball, tosses everything in the washer. She puts on a new pair of underwear and a pad, a pair of leggings without any obvious stains that she finds in the hamper. She doesn't seem to be bleeding anymore. The mattress is fine, she put a plastic back cover on it during her last trimester when she was afraid of her water breaking in the middle of the night, but the bleeding is worrisome. It started two days after Martin left, off and on, and every once in a while in a sudden rush that leaves her scrambling for something to staunch it. So far, she has bled through four sets of sheets, twice on the driver's seat of her car, once on the couch, and through almost every pair of underwear and pants she owns. This didn't happen with either of the girls. She didn't have much postpartum bleeding after either birth, and no periods at all until she'd stopped breastfeeding when they each turned two. She should call Dr. Thomas. He was the only OB who'd been willing to take her on so late in the pregnancy after the move. He was young. He'd smiled, listened to her, patted her leg, told her not to worry. She'd felt comfortable with him during their appointments. When she arrived at the hospital in labor and found out he was the doctor on duty, she was relieved. But then she asked for an epidural, and he patted her leg again, said, You can hold out a little longer. And by the time she was clenching her jaw and gritting her teeth and begging for it, it was too late. The pain had been phenomenal. She'd stayed in transition for hours longer than she should have, tensing and fighting the pain, racked by wave after wave of contractions, And when she couldn't stand it any longer, she'd gotten out of the hospital bed and walked back and forth across the floor, naked, holding her belly, blood and amniotic fluid trailing the floor behind her. The nurses and Martin tried to calm her, but she shoved their hands away and hissed fuck off because the thought of lying down in that goddamn bed to ride out the contractions was unimaginable. When she finally felt the urge to push, Dr. Thomas made her lie down and looked between her legs and told her it was time, so she pushed. When she did, she felt him pulling some part of her body aside like it was a curtain, and it felt like her goddamn insides were being ripped out, and she screamed and he said, you've been through this before, and patted her leg again. And if she hadn't been having a baby at that moment, she would have ripped his testicles off and shoved them down his fucking throat. Later, One of the nurses told her that her cervix never fully dilated. When Dr. Thomas told her to push, he was pulling her cervix aside, stretching it like a rubber band. When she complained at her six-week appointment of the ripping pain she still felt when she tried to pee, when she tried to walk too fast, when she laughed, he said it was normal and she'd heal eventually. When she asked why he'd stretched her cervix rather than waiting for her to dilate fully, He smiled at her, like she was a child asking a foolish question. "'Sometimes we have to speed the process along,' he'd said. Laura can imagine the call. How he'd say in that calm, condescending way he has that every postpartum period is different, that it's a side effect of the continued contraction of her uterus, that she's a mom three times over now and she really shouldn't worry about a little blood.' You're just fine, he'd say. You focus on helping that baby get big and strong. The thought of making that call, of the effort it would take to insist on an appointment so that he could look between her legs and tell her she's overreacting, of the work of packing the kids into the car, of trying to keep Sloan from digging in the office garbage, of listening to Laney whine about being bored, of the baby waking up and screaming to nurse... All of it makes her want to climb back into bed. Fuck it. If the bleeding gets bad, she'll call an ambulance. that was flutter with stillness. Laura puts the baby in the Moby wrap and he falls asleep again while she makes the girls breakfast. Lainey's content to color at the table while she waits for eggs and bacon but Sloan as usual is crying for food and pulling at Laura's leg. Laura gets a fruit pouch out of the pantry and hands it to her. Sloan toddles off into the living room to watch Paw Patrol. After the girls finish eating, the baby's still asleep, so Laura puts him in the cradle in the bedroom. She should do something with the girls. Sit them down to color, read them a book, something. But she is so fucking tired. When Lainey begs to watch Frozen, Laura turns it on and goes back into the kitchen to make more coffee. While the coffee is brewing, she opens Martin's article again and scrolls down to the comments. This one got me wrote Tony 412. Great read, wrote, is queer for sloths. Ugh, so good, wrote Queen B9122. Take me on your next adventure? And then two smiley face emojis with hearts for eyes. I bet your wife is so proud, wrote Archangel 99. The comment with the come on should probably be the one that grates, but it's the last one that gets her. I'll bet your wife is so proud. What does that even mean? Laura stares at the kitchen wall while she drinks her coffee. Three of her cover stories are framed there. The New York Times magazine piece on the murders of the five trans women in the West Village. The one for National Geographic on post-Ebola syndrome in Carytown, Sierra Leone. The Vanity Fair profile of Hillary Clinton. Has Archangel 99 ever written... I bet your husband is so proud, in the comment section of a woman's story. In the living room, Elsa is singing about letting it go for the hundred thousandth time. So Laura turns on the portable weather radio she keeps in the kitchen. Go to sleep, you little fool, sings Colin Malloy. Forty winking in the belfry, you'll not feel the drowning. Laura turns the music down a hair. The crane wife at 9 a.m., Jesus. She rubs her eyes. Her head hurts. Her back hurts. She needs to eat something. Below Elsa's grating voice and Malloy's mournful one, there's something else. The sounds of the house. The drip of the faucet in the bathroom, which never fully shuts off, no matter how tightly she turns the knob. The creak of the floorboards, which have the give of a mattress in places. The wheeze of the windows, which suck and exhale around their edges like giant mouths. The privacy is nice. It's tucked away down a long driveway near the end of a cul-de-sac, embedded deep in a cluster of pine trees. But it's obvious why it was available on such short notice. The whole thing feels precariously alive. Some ancient, knock-kneed mammoth that's going to keel over at any moment and spill its guts all around them. At the end of the song, the news comes on. A voice says the tropical storm has officially turned into a hurricane and is tracking in their direction. Laura's never been in a hurricane. She knows tornadoes from her childhood in Oklahoma. She's got about a week's worth of non-perishables, some flashlights and candles. But what else? Should she board up the windows? She doesn't have any boards. More important, she doesn't have any energy. She looks outside. The one neighbor she can see has their lights on, cars in the driveway. She doesn't know any of the neighbors. They are all so far away. If it was dangerous to be here, they'd be gone, wouldn't they? She puts down her coffee and opens the kitchen door, thinking maybe it will help circulate the air. But it's like the inside of a sauna outside. Steam curls into the air. Everywhere, there is the whir and chitter of insects. The ferns that line the driveway flutter like the wings of a flock of giant green birds, blocking out the only neighbor's house that she's able to see. And it feels like the house has been lifted up in the night by an unknown hand and set down again somewhere in the deep of some tropical forest. Laura closes the door, picks up her coffee again. In the living room, Elsa has finally shut her trap, and the trolls are singing about a fixer-upper. It's nearly impossible to breathe here, The air is so cold that each time I exhale, I watch my breath cloud in the air, and I'm afraid it's going to freeze through, drop to the ground, and shatter instead of drift away. I can feel a thin layer of ice on the surface of my skin, netting through my eyebrows, trying to seal my lips together. It's minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit here, and I am cold all the way to my bones. I'm going to have to keep moving. I know if I slow down, it will mean certain death. This in fact is life in Antarctica, the threat of death at every turn. If the cold doesn't get you, then it's likely the disorientation will.
1: If I could
0: Was flutter with angel of death. By naptime, time Sloan has demanded ten times that Laura braid her doll's hair and then immediately ripped it out again and the baby woke up hot and cranky and fussed throughout his feed. Lainey asks to go to the lake and when Laura tells her no it's raining she throws a monstrous fit screaming and crying and pitching all her books and stuffed animals into a pile on the bedroom floor. The sound of her screams makes Sloan whimper and startles the baby, and he wails, demanding to be picked up. Laura puts the baby back in the wrap to lull him back to sleep. Then she puts both girls in their beds for quiet time. "'I wish Daddy was here instead of you,' says Lainey, her face red and slick with tears. "'Me too,' says Laura. She shuts the door. She wants to slam it, to scream.' but the baby is finally asleep again in the wrap. "'I love you, Mama,' calls Sloane. "'I love you a hundred times.' "'I love you too, Bug,' says Laura. "'But she doesn't go back inside. "'Instead, she thinks of the small, dark thing "'that lives in the pit of her stomach, "'at the way it stops its gnawing to whisper, "'I hate you,' "'at the way she knows without having to be told "'that it's not talking about the girls.' She lets the hatred seep through every single limb of her body, every organ, every artery and vein. For a moment, she is pulsing with it. She is a great, white, hot mass of rage, and she can feel the small, dark thing opening its maw, and then she clamps it shut again. The rage dissipates. All she is left with is herself, standing in a darkened hallway, a baby asleep against her chest, the sound of her little girls murmuring in their beds. Back in her bedroom, Laura slowly eases the baby's limp body back into his cradle. Once he's settled, she sits down on the bed. She needs to write. God, she hasn't written in months. But there's nothing in this life to write about, and she is so exhausted, more tired than she's ever been in her life. She'll lie down on the bed, just for a minute. When she opens her eyes again, it's dark. She checks her phone. It's nearly dinner time. Too quiet. The air conditioning isn't running. Laura flicks the light by the bed. Power's out. The rain is heavier, the wind sucking through the cracks of the windows. The hail is insistent now, hammering the roof, the window panes. The baby is still sleeping in his cradle, his little chest rising and falling. He has two fingers in his mouth, and he's sucking on them. She leans over to run a finger down his cheek, and then she feels the wetness beneath her. She gets up off the mattress. The bloodstain is the size of a small tabletop. The mattress is ruined. She thinks of the cost of replacing it, the trouble of getting the gore hauled away. And then she feels the blood still running down her thighs, and something else. She goes to the bathroom, pulls off her leggings. In her underwear are five huge clots of blood, black-red, glutinous. They slide from her underwear and fall to the floor with the splat of rotten fruit. She picks one up. It is large as a plum, its surface shiny, smooth. Suddenly, it moves. She drops it into the toilet, then she picks up the other four and tosses them in. The clots bloom in the water like giant red water lilies, petal-shaped tendrils of blood unfurling across the bottom of the bowl. They move again, like petals in a breeze. She flushes, and they disappear. Her hands are gory, blood already caking under her fingernails, and she scrubs them in the sink. Her heart is racing, her head hot, heavy, throbbing. She presses her damp hand to her forehead. She doesn't know where the thermometer is. The bleeding seems to have slowed. Laura calls Dr. Thomas's answering service anyway as she puts on the mesh underwear left over from the hospital, one of the postpartum pads, and the only clean pants she has left, a pair of old sweats from college. The call tries to connect, but the phone remains silent. After a minute, Laura disconnects, tries again. Nothing. She tries her internet. No Wi-Fi, but so far it's still working on her phone, so the tower's not out. Outside, the rain is a waterfall, the windows sucking air in and out like someone panting right outside the door. Lightning flashes across the sky like shattered glass, the crack of thunder right on top of it. The house rumbles around her like someone's huge hands drumming on its roof. The baby starts, cries. In their rooms, Sloane and Laney both call her. That was flutter with isolate. I'm aware of the dangers. I'm going to make sure that neither death nor disorientation gets me. Instead, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Ernest Shackleton and see if I can succeed where he failed to cross the entire continent of Antarctica on foot, a journey of 1,000 miles. I have a team of people along to keep me supplied and focused on my goal. For the next month and a half, I'll be trying to keep Antarctica at bay and grappling with everything Mother Nature throws at me. Laura straps the baby to her chest again and gets both girls out of bed. Why is it so loud, Mama? says Lainey. Why are there no lights? It's a power outage, lovey. It'll be okay. She drags two chairs into the living room from the kitchen, throws a couple of blankets over them, "'turns on the nightmare before Christmas on her computer, "'which, thankfully, is fully charged. "'She hands each of the girls a small bowl of goldfish crackers. "'We're going to camp out,' she says. "'It's an adventure.' "'There are candles in the pantry "'and matches in the kitchen junk drawer. "'Her head is throbbing. "'There's no stove, no microwave, "'so she pulls turkey and cheese and mayonnaise from the fridge "'and she makes three sandwiches. "'The baby is grousing again,' And so she lifts her shirt to help him latch and then lightning cracks open the sky again and she sees the water, the slow dark lick of it making its way up the driveway and at the edge of the yard, the something with its silvery back snuffling in the bushes, then dark again. A clap of thunder and the house shudders around her as if it's been struck like a bell and her head pulses with it. She rubs her temples. She takes the sandwiches to the girls. There's no hot water, so there's no bath. The girls bristle at the interruption of their routine, bristle at the heat, and they whine and wriggle, struggle to sleep. By the time Laura finds a battery-powered fan in the closet and cools them off enough to get them down, the baby is fussing again. Martin texts just after she's gotten settled on the couch and gotten him latched. All good there? Fine, she writes. Storming. Powers out. Can you call one of the neighbors, see if they know when it will be back? She puts down the phone and rubs her aching head again. What could they possibly tell her that she couldn't find out from Gainesville Regional Utilities? She doesn't know any of them. She never got to introduce herself when they moved in three months ago because it was all so rushed, getting settled before Martin left, and then the baby came, and then Martin was gone. Sure she writes. I can do that. Outside, thunder again, and the house rattles as if it is breaking apart around her. Lightning makes it day again. The water is closer, lapping at the wheels on the tires of her car now. Somewhere beyond, there are houses, but they are great shifting things in the distance, almost like they're floating away. She can't see the something, but she can hear it clacking. Are those claws? Teeth? Closer to the house than it's ever been before. Martin texts again. You good otherwise? Kid's okay? She thinks of telling him the truth. Of him reading it on his satellite phone 8,500 miles away. He would pack up his tent, make his team turn the dogs around. It would take him at least a week to get here. And no matter what he said, he'd hate her for it. She would feel it like a warmth in his skin. She would hear it in his voice. Ask me how you know that, says a small, dark thing inside her. She closes her eyes, imagines a hand around its small, dark mouth. We're good. Girls are fine. Baby's eating well. Send me a pic when you can. Tomorrow. Heart. Heart. That was Flutter with When You Arrive. The baby has fallen asleep and away from her breast, his mouth working at that phantom nipple again. She stands up to take him to the bedroom, and there is a great, uncontrollable giving way inside her, a tremendous warmth between her legs and down her pants, and she looks down. Blood is spreading around her feet in a red plume. Jesus fuck, she says, and she hurries to the bedroom, puts the baby in his cradle. When she turns around, the blood has become a red snake behind her. She goes to the bathroom and strips again, and there's another great giving way inside her, and this time pain, so much that she feels lightheaded, nauseous. She takes a pair of Martin's pajama pants from his drawer and her last pair of underwear, her last postpartum pad, and she picks up her phone again, dials 911. The phone says Calling. Calling calling but it does not connect so she turns to close the bathroom door because she can't deal with the mess and there is a mass of red snakes on the floor and she nearly screams but then she blinks her eyes and they're gone she sits down on the bed her heart is pounding pounding she dials again the phone says calling 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 but nothing and she puts her pounding head on her pillow with the phone next to it because if the call goes through and she doesn't answer, someone will come. Someone will come. She's in a boat. It lifts and dips, and there's water all around her. She is Huck Finn. She is Ishmael. She is Meryl Streep riding the rapids, and the sky is cracking open like a roof above her, and there is a great bolt of lightning, thunder, and she opens her eyes. Her phone is next to her. It's screen black. She presses the power button. Nothing. Dead. The pain in her head is like someone has cracked her skull open with a hammer. The roof is still lifting away in pieces above her. They are floating off into the sky, but she is not dreaming. She is awake, and close by is a thudding sound, like someone is trying to break in. The only thing left of the house is the walls. The only thing above her, the great howling of the wind. She lets a hand fall over the edge of the bed, and there is water there, lapping at the bedposts. She grabs the baby from his cradle before it floats away, straps him to her chest again. She stands up, and the water reaches her ankles, warm and black-red, and she's afraid that all of it is blood, that she is responsible. But there's water in the blood. She can smell it beneath the copper, the earthiness, and she is relieved. Lightning lights up the sky again, and there is a paw at the window, the something unhinging its jaw. She thinks the thudding is the something, but then she sees it, a small boat bumping its bow against the porch. She gets the girls from their beds, carries them to the front door, Wait here, she says, and she opens the door quietly. Above them, the wind howls and the pine trees whip around like reeds, but down on the water it is still, and she wades in, past her car bobbing like a cork, to grab the boat. She can't see the something. She puts the girls in, one by one, the bottoms of their nightgowns stained red from where they trailed in the water, Mama, whispers "Laney, this doesn't look like a boat to me. Laura climbs in and pushes them away from the front porch, and then in the corner of her eye the something appears, walking a strip of land that hasn't yet submerged. She is close enough now to see it, the shine of its eyes, the shimmer of its silver back, the dull ivory glow of its teeth. Laura picks up the oars and begins to row out into the vast dark, into the far away where, somewhere, there are houses. Somewhere, there are people. The blood gives way again inside her, the clots slithering out like black-red fish. In a moment, the blood fills the bottom of the boat, and the black-red fish break over the edge and are gone. The something watches them for a moment, and then it slips into the water after them, only the silver of its head visible above the surface. Laura puts one hand on Laney and points toward the something. "'I want you to watch that,' she says. "'Tell me when it gets closer.' Laney squints into the darkness. "'Mama, there's nothing there,' she says. She looks up at Laura. "'Why are we here, Mama? Why aren't we sleeping?' Over Laney's shoulder, Laura can see the something getting closer. Closer. Shh, lovey. Says Laura, and she begins to row harder. It's an adventure. was Flutter with Chalk Girl. I hope you enjoyed that beautiful story by Megan Pillow. She is a fabulous writer and you can find out more about her and read her beautiful work online at meganpillow.com. That's m-e-g-a-n-p-i-l-l-o-w.com. Megan Pillow is also founder of Submerged, an archive of caregivers underwater, which I'm going to tell you about a little later in the show. But first, I guess it's time for a little mousset. I have a snack-sized interview for you with our featured musician Flutter, a.k.a. Christine Ingoldson. I sent her a few questions, and she was kind enough to send me back her answers, which I will read to you now. One, if you were to create a self-portrait out of sounds, what would you include? If you were building a self-portrait from objects, what would they be? For a self-portrait of sounds, I'd include ghostly wind, an owl hoot, soft wind chimes, and broken beats that glitch like failing audio. For a self-portrait from objects, there would be a small animal figurine and lonely patch cable alongside a well-used handmade ceramic mug and fresh flower. 2. What five words do you find most magical? Serendipitous, chrysalis, flow, shadow, gossamer. Three, what is your songwriting process and creative practice like? What similarities do you find across your audio and visual work? My songwriting process starts from a feeling or mood with the rhythm first. I practice and record to that vibe, and then the visual work aims to complement the sounds with more intentional concepts. Another way to say this is that my music comes from my heart and visual art comes from my mind. Together they show my spirit. My creative practice requires a lot of mental space and meditation. The similarities across my audio and visual work are in the theme and the connection I try to make between the two mediums to tell a larger story. Four, you're making a mixtape of your obsessions. What's on side A, side B? Side A has experimental dance, Old goth and freestyle classics, while side B has chill jazz concluding with binaural beats. 5. What is your earliest memory of a plant? When I was about four years old, I'd talk to the lily of the valley flowers in my backyard. Bonus. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? Rabbit. Thank you so much to Flutter for that interview. That was a tasty little mosaic, I think. Um, I love that about talking to the lily of the valley flowers. I think we should all go talk to some flowers, uh, as many flowers and as often as possible. Um, Anyway, uh, you can find more of Flutter's work online. You can go straight to her music at bandcamp at fluttermusic.com, but you should also check out her full website, CIngaldson.com. that's c-i-n-g-a-l-d-s-o-n.com, and she has music and paintings and video art and light mapping and shadow puppetry and just lots of really cool stuff, so go check her out and talk to some plants too. Now let's hop on the old theremin and head to.
1: Mousie's Apothecary. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. It's nice to see you
0: again. It's been a couple weeks. Oh, yeah. Hi, Miss Mousie. It's good to be back in the apothecarium. Uh, what you got cooking today? Well, I was listening to that story you're reading by Megan Pillow, Water and the Blood, and boy, that sure was intense. Yeah, it's a bit on the dark side. Well, so, especially since it's in the title, I was really thinking about blood, um, and well first, I'd like to remind you and your listeners, Mr. Bear, that I'm not a doctor, I'm a two-dimensional hand-drawn mouse who's studying herbalism, and I'm just coming up with, you know, formulas and ideas for literary characters and music, uh, you know, to have, have some fun with. Um, but I mean, they're all, you know, they're things that, uh, humans could, uh, definitely look into trying on their own, but, uh, just, you know, want to make sure, uh, everyone understands where I'm coming from. Yeah. So, um, I, I was thinking, um, uh just with all that blood, uh, she's losing that. I'd really like to have, well, she needs to get some, you know, professional medical help if you're losing that much blood, you know, but, um, I would, would still have some yarrow tea or some yarrow tincture, you know, maybe like while you're waiting for an ambulance to come, or on your way, you know, to a hospital. Um, Or, you know, maybe uh, you're off the grid, or it's a post-apocalyptic situation, and, you know, there are no hospitals. Um, So yarrow is a a wonderful plant. Um, Some people think it's a weed, uh, but I don't like to use the word weeds, because people, people say it like... Weeds aren't plants, or like there's something bad, but they're just plants that are really good at growing, and I mean, that's an admirable quality in a plant. And plus, most, you know, so-called weeds have tremendous nutrition and medicinal value, um, but plus lots of them are just really pretty, and you know, they have flowers too. Um, you know, people say, oh, dandelion's just a weed, but I mean... It's still a flower. I mean, when it has a flower, you know, um, when it starts out, it's a basil rosette. But um, anyway, I digress. Uh, Back to uh, yarrow, which is a beautiful plant and has beautiful flowers. Um, But the leaves are these uh, lovely kind of feathery, uh, lacy, uh, just absolutely beautiful. I love to pet them. Uh, oh me too, Miss Mousie. They grow in the backyard, and I just uh I just like to sit down with them. So anyway, um, Yarrow has been a staple in in first aid for, well, really forever. Um, it's really great in wound care, and uh, it's styptic. Uh, has styptic properties, which means it can help uh stop bleeding, which could be very useful here, um. I, as I said, you know, losing that much blood, I would, you know, want to seek some professional medical help. But uh, while, you know, while I was waiting for that help, or if I wasn't able to get it, I would definitely have a yarrow tea and yarrow tincture. Um, and just an interesting note about yarrow. The scientific name is Achillea millefolium, and Achillea is from the Greek for Achilles, who was the famous Greek warrior that, um, you know, did so great in battle and all that. As you you might know, because I know you like mythology, Mr. Bear. Yeah, it's true, I do. Um, uh, Achilles' mother was a Neread, and she wanted to make her son immortal and that didn't quite work out, Uh, but she she really wanted to protect him and one rumor says that she dipped him in yarrow tea uh, from head to foot uh, for its protective qualities and it's only where she was holding on to him by the heel uh, that was his only weak spot was the Achilles heel. Oh I've I've heard of that phrase for sure and the Achilles heel. Yes, um that's where it comes from. Some people say it was the river Styx, but um I've also heard it was T and I really like that version. So, uh anyway, um so that's one one thing I was thinking about. Uh but what I'd also like to make for her is a linden and violet infusion. Um linden and violet are Two really safe and gentle herbs, and they're they're both they're just lovely, and they're soothing and nourishing to the heart and their're nervines, which means they're calming to the nerves, and violets are packed with vitamins and minerals and I just think that she could use some some support and nourishment physically and emotionally, Um, and linden and violet would be lovely. So I would suggest putting, you know, a few big handfuls of each in a jar, and you can do a cold infusion, just do water from the tap and leave it overnight, and then you have a beautiful drink uh, for the next day. And um, another thing is maybe uh, she could send the girls out to pick some violets and dandelions and chickweed from the yard if they have any growing there I mean most people do in their yards and um, as long as they don't use pesticides and I really hope nobody's using pesticides on their lawns because that's really not very nice to the plants and the earth and the animals and the people. Um, but yes, so the girls could go out and gather some violets and dandelions and chickweed flowers and leaves and make a delicious little salad. Oh, that, that sounds pretty tasty, Miss Mousie. And, you know, spring is coming, so so those plants are all going to be coming up Uh, in, in a lot of people's yards, aren't they? They sure are, Mr. Bear. Oh, uh, well, thanks so much, Miss Mousie. Um... Did you uh did you get a chance to uh, think about Flutter's music? Oh I, I did. Um I really like it. Um it has a very thonic vibe, I feel like. Um Oh what's um thonic? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Mr. Bear. It's a new word I learned this week. I love learning new words. And it means having to do with the underworld. Subterranean, but you know, usually associated with like mythology and stuff. So with the underworld. Um I don't know, I just I just got that vibe from that music, kind of, you know, dreamy and underworldy.
1: Um
0: Yeah, I, I can see that. I like it. Okay. Phonic. Um Great, so uh, do, do you have um, well, some creation for Flutters music? I do. Uh, I was thinking, um, I've got a couple of things in mind. Um, my When in Hades vinegar, and that is, I like to put uh, organic pomegranate skins and Greek sage and red rose petals in some apple cider vinegar and just leave it for months to infuse and then you just have this uh, incredibly tasty vinegar and you can you know you can just have a little shot of it on its own or you can put it in a salad dressing or you can mix it with honey for an oxymel and um, it's uh, delicious oh that, that sounds pretty great um, the other thing I was thinking of, oh, was my cuckoo for cocoa bitters. Ooh, uh, cuckoo for cocoa, that, um, sounds like, uh, breakfast cereal. Well, um, I know it sounds like that, yeah, that, um, that, that rabbit, or, right, was it a rabbit who was cuckoo for something? Um, boy, I'm really going off on tangents tonight. Um, anyway um cuckoo for cocoa bitters uh i put organic cacao nibs in old crow bourbon whiskey but you know you could use any bourbon whiskey or you know really any other thing you wanted to but and leave it um i mean you only have to leave it for like a month but i've i've got it still in there a few months later and it's just delicious oh what do you do with it, miss mousie Honestly, Mr. Bear, I just uh, take a little sip of it now and again because it's so delicious. Um, but you know, you could um, you could put it in a drink, uh, like if you had an old fashioned or some kind of cocktail and wanted to add a little bit of a chocolatey uh, flavor to it. Um, I think that would be a nice idea. Um, or uh, might be good over ice cream. Well, that sounds pretty tasty. Oh, uh, thanks so much, Miss Mousie. This has been great. Oh, thanks, Mr. Bear. It's been really fun. Um, I look forward to seeing you again. Uh, okay, um, well, uh, I'll let you uh, get back to your apothecary. Okay, take care. And in today's Pequilia, I have a couple of offerings for you. First up is a writing prompt by the wonderful writer K.B. Carl. Prompt, a story in thirds. Write a scene in 300 words or less that includes one main character, two or more secondary characters, an object, and at least one line of dialogue. Insert a moment of conflict between your characters over the one object. Then, draw a line or hit Enter and write the scene again. In this scene, transform one of your secondary characters into the main character. Include the same line of dialogue and object that provokes your scene's conflict. Consider how the moment you're depicting changes based upon this new character's perspective. Draw a line or hit Enter. Write the scene again. In this scene, select a new secondary character to take the role of the main character. Or, if you love experimenting with your writing, write from the point of view of the object that inspires conflict within the scene. Notice how each of your character's motivations, actions, and reactions change within these scenes. Also, notice how a line of dialogue Takes on new meaning depending on the situation or tone. This prompt was inspired by Three Likely Stories, a work of flash fiction by Kathy Fish. And you can read that piece at Forge Lip Mag. They're online at forgelipmag.com and you can search for Three Likely Stories by Kathy with a K. Fish. Thank you so much to KB for writing that prompt for the Viola Hour. Uh, I think we're going to have some fun with that. Uh, KB is a fantastic writer, and you can find out more about her and read her beautiful work on her website, kbcarl.com. That's K-B-C-A-R-L-E dot com. And KB also teaches Flash, and she is going to be teaching several places coming up. So she is going to be teaching a virtual workshop, Duplication, Replication, Reiteration, A Closer Look at Writing Repetition in Flash, for the Mendocino Writers' Conference on May 8th. June 18th to 20th, she'll be teaching a virtual weekend workshop through Bending Genres. And September 18th, she'll be teaching a virtual workshop for Retreat West's first online flash fiction festival, So if you want to find out more about those opportunities to learn from K.B. Carl, you can contact her through a form on her website, kbcarl.com. Next up in the Piccolia Sampler is the project Submerged, an archive of caregivers underwater. And this is a very large and ambitious project by our featured writer, Megan Pillow. She has started a monthly column at Pigeonholes, and I'm going to read to you a little bit from her first column to tell you about this project. Every time I've written a version of my story, I've thought of how many others just like mine are out there. The story after story after story I've read in the newspapers about how devastating the COVID 19 pandemic has been on caregivers. Because our country offers no support to caregivers, there are so many people, primarily women, who have given up their careers and their identities to care for children and disabled folks and the elderly. And while media coverage is important, the individual stories scattered across a handful of newspapers aren't enough. They don't give us a sense of the true scope of the problem, and they don't tell you that the majority of those reported stories are about white people like me. The most important stories are the ones that rarely make it into the archives of the United States. The stories of indigenous, black, and other caregivers of color. Disabled caregivers, undocumented caregivers, queer caregivers, and working class and low-income caregivers. These are the stories most likely to disappear from our collective history. My story may not be unique, but I do live at the intersection of three kinds of caregiving. I'm living with and helping care for three elderly people and two children. My eldest son, Atticus, also has Down syndrome. Every time I read a story that is similar to mine, it is as if I see that caregiver across the surface of a vast body of water. A caregiver sinking and holding up a sign. We are underwater here, it says. We are submerged. Like me, they are looking for some kind of salvation. This column is the beginning of what I hope will be a collective salvation effort, not relief from the volumes of caregiver work, but relief in the form of a chronicling, a preserving of caregiver stories in remembrance and in the hopes of enacting change. I will spend the next six months gathering and sharing a handful of caregiver stories in this column. At the same time, I'll be raising money to construct Submerged, an archive of caregivers underwater an equitable, accessible digital archive in which I plan to house as many caregiver stories in the United States as possible. You can read more of Megan's columns at Pigeonholes.com, and you can find out more about this terrific project and how you can support it, they have a Patreon, uh, by going to the website SubmergedArchive.com. Thank you so much, Megan, for letting me share your work on The Violet Hour and for starting this incredible archive. And thanks again also to Flutter, a.k.a. Christine Ingoldson and K.B. Carl, for sharing your work with the Violet Hour. And that's all I have for you on this new moon. I hope you all have something good to plant in the coming weeks, and I look forward to being back on the full moon and see what's shining then. Thanks for listening, and be kind to each other theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousy believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Pottawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city, state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and Indigenous peoples' past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and somerville media center somerville's longest running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity explain its ideas share its cultures and foster the individual right to freedom of speech learn more about somerville media center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing boston free radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com thanks for listening